Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part Two The Wreath Chapter Three The Farmers Guild at Acker was dedicated to St. Margareta, and every year began its meeting on the 20th of July, which was St. Margareta's Day. On that day, the brothers and sisters would gather with their children, guests, and servants at Acker Church to attend Mass at the St. Margareta altar. Afterward, they would go to the Guild Hall, which stood near Holfen Hospice. There, they would drink for five days. But because both Acker Church and Holfen Hospice belonged to Nonnesetter, and since many of the Acker peasants were tenant farmers of the convent, the custom had arisen for the abbess and several of the eldest sisters to honor the guild by attending the celebrations on the first day. And the young maidens of the convent who were there to be educated, but who were not going to enter the order, were allowed to go along and dance in the evening, and for this celebration they would wear their own clothes and not their convent attire. So there was great commotion in the young novice's dormitory on the evening before St. Margareta's Day. Those maidens who were to attend the banquet rummaged through their chests and laid out their finery, while the others looked on and moped. Some of the girls had set small pots on the hearth and were boiling water to make their skin soft and white. Others were brewing something that they rubbed in their hair, Afterward, when they had wound strands of their hair tightly around leather straps, they would have wavy and curly tresses. Ingeborg took out all that she owned of finery, but she couldn't decide what to wear. Not her best leaf-green velvet dress, anyway. It was too costly and too elegant to wear to such a farmer's guild, but a thin little maiden who was not going along, Helga was her name, and she had been given to the convent as a child pulled Kristen aside and whispered that Ingeborg would of course wear the green dress and her pink silk shift. "'You've always been kind to me, Kristen,' said Helga. "'It's most improper for me to get involved in such things, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The knight who escorted you home on that evening in the spring. I have both seen and heard that Ingeborg has talked to him since then. They have spoken to each other in church.' and he has waited for her up along the fenced road when she goes to visit Ingen at the Corodian's house. But it's you that he asks for, and Ingeborg has promised to bring you out there with her. I'll wager that you've never heard about this before, have you? It's true that Ingeborg has never mentioned this to me, said Kristen. She pursed her lips so that the other maiden wouldn't see the smile that threatened to appear. So that's the kind of girl Ingeborg was. I expect she realizes that I'm not the type to run off to meetings with strange men behind house corners and fences, she said haughtily. Then I could have spared myself the trouble to tell you this news, since it would have been more proper for me not to mention it, said Helga, offended, and the two parted. But all evening Kristen had to try not to smile whenever anyone looked at her.
The next day, Ingebjörg dawdled for a long time, wearing only her shift. Kristen finally realized that the other maiden was not going to get dressed until she herself was done. Kristen didn't say a word, but she laughed as she went over to her chest and took out her golden yellow silk shift. She had never worn it before, and it felt so soft and cool as it slid over her body. It was beautifully trimmed with silver and blue and brown silk at the neck and across the part of the bodice that would be visible above the neckline of her dress. There were also matching sleeves. She pulled on her linen stockings and tied the ribbons of the dainty blue-violet shoes which Hawken had fortunately managed to bring home on that tumultuous day. Ingebjörg looked at her. Then Kristen laughed and said, My father has always taught me that we should not show contempt for our inferiors, but you are no doubt so grand that you won't want to dress up for peasants and tenant farmers. Her face as red as a berry, Ingebjörg dropped the woolen shift from her white hips and put on the pink silk one. Kristen slipped her best velvet dress over her head. It was violet-blue and cut deep across the bodice, with slit sleeves and cuffs that trailed almost to the ground. She wrapped the gilded belt around her waist and slung her gray squirrel cloak over her shoulders. Then she spread out her thick blonde hair over her shoulders and placed the circlet studded with roses on her forehead. She noticed that Helga was watching them. Then she took from her chest a large silver clasp. It was the one she had worn on her cloak the night that Bentine had confronted her on the road, and she had never wanted to wear it since. She went over to Helga and said softly, I realize that you meant to show me kindness yesterday. You must believe I know that. And she handed the clasp to Helga. Ingebjörg was also quite beautiful when she had finished dressing, wearing her green gown with a red silk cloak over her shoulders and her pretty curly hair falling loose. They had been in a race to outdress each other, thought Kristen, and laughed. The morning was cool and fresh with dew when the procession wound its way from Nonacetter, heading west toward Frisia. The haying season was almost over in that area but along the fences grew clusters of bluebells and golden maria grass. The barley in the fields had sprouted spikes and rippled pale silver with a sheen of faint rose. In many places where the path was narrow and led through the fields, the grain brushed against people's knees. Hawken walked in front, carrying the convent's banner with the image of the Virgin Mary on blue silk cloth. Behind him walked the servants and Corodians, and then came Fru Groa and four old nuns on horseback, followed by the young maidens on foot. Their colorful, secular feast attire shimmered and fluttered in the sun. Several Corodian women and a few armed men brought up the rear of the procession. They sang as they walked across the bright meadows, and whenever they met others on the side roads, the people would step aside and greet them respectfully. All across the fields, small groups of people were walking and riding, heading toward the church from every house and farm. In a little while, they heard behind them hymns sung by deep male voices, and they saw the cloister banner from Hovdu rise up over a hill. The red silk cloth gleamed in the sun, bobbing and swaying with the footsteps of the man who was bearing it. The mighty, sonorous voices of the bells drowned out the neighs and whinnies of the stallions as they came over the last hill to the church. Kristen had never seen so many horses at one time, 
A surging, restless sea of glossy equine backs surrounded the green in front of the entrance to the church. People dressed for the celebration were standing, sitting, and lying on the slope, but everyone stood up in greeting when the Maria banner from Nonaceter was carried in amongst them, and they all bowed deeply to Fru Groa. It looked as if more people had come than the church would hold, but an open space closest to the altar had been reserved for the people from the convent. A moment later the Cistercian monks from Hovda came in and went up to the choir, and then song resounded throughout the church from the throats of men and boys. During the Mass, when everyone had risen, Kristen caught sight of Erland Niklausen. He was tall, and his head towered above those around him. She saw his face from the side. He had a high, narrow forehead and a large, straight nose. It jutted out like a triangle from his face and was strangely thin, with fine, quivering nostrils. There was something about it that reminded Kristen of a skittish, frightened stallion. He was not as handsome as she thought she had remembered him. The lines in his face seemed to extend so long and somberly down to his soft, small, attractive mouth. Oh yes, he was handsome after all. He turned his head and saw her. She didn't know how long they continued to stare into each other's eyes. Then her only thought was for the mass to be over. She waited expectantly to see what would happen next. As everyone began to leave the crowded church, there was a great crush. Ingebjörg pulled Kristen along with her, backward into the throng. They were easily separated from the nuns, who were the first to leave. The girls were among the last to approach the altar with their offering, and then exit from the church. Erland was standing outside, right next to the door, between the priest from Gerderud and a stout, red-faced man wearing a magnificent blue velvet surcoat. Erland was dressed in silk, but in dark colors, a long brown and black patterned surcoat and a black cape interwoven with little yellow falcons. They greeted each other and walked across the slope toward the spot where the men's horses were tethered. As they exchanged words about the weather, the beautiful mass, and the great crowd of people in attendance, the fat, ruddy-faced gentleman, he wore golden spurs and his name was Sir Munan Bardson, offered his hand to Ingebjörg. He seemed to find the maiden exceedingly attractive. Erland and Kristen fell behind. They walked along in silence. There was a great hubbub on the church hill as people began to ride off. Horses jostled past each other and people shouted, some of them angry, some of them laughing. Many of them rode in pairs, men with their wives behind them or children in front on the saddle, and young boys leaped up to ride with a friend. They could already see the church banners, the nuns, and the priest far below them. Sir Monon rode past. Ingebjörg was sitting in front of him, in his arms. They both shouted and waved. Then Erland said, My men are both here with me. They could take one of these horses, and you could have Hofdor's, if you would prefer that. Kristen blushed as she replied, We're so far behind the others already, and I don't see your men, so... Then she laughed, and Erland smiled. He leaped into the saddle and helped her up behind him. At home, Kristen often sat sideways behind her father, after she grew too old to sit astride the horse's loins. And yet she felt a little shy and uncertain as she placed one of her hands over Erland's shoulder. With the other hand, she supported herself against the horse's back. Slowly, they rode down toward the bridge. 
After a little while, Kristen felt that she ought to speak, since he did not, and she said, It was unexpected, sir, to meet you here today. Was it unexpected? asked Erland, turning his head around toward her. Hasn't Ingebjörg Philip's daughter brought you my greeting? No, said Kristen. I haven't heard of any greeting. She has never mentioned you since that day when you came to our aid back in May, she said slyly. She wanted Ingebjörg's duplicity to come to light. Erland didn't turn around, but she could hear in his voice that he was smiling when he spoke again. And what about that little black-haired one? The novitiate. I can't remember her name. I even paid her a messenger's fee to give you my greetings. Kristen blushed, but then she had to laugh. Yes, I suppose I owe it to Helga to tell you that she earned her pay, she said. Erland moved his head slightly, and his neck came close to her hand. Kristen shifted her hand at once to a place farther out on his shoulder. Rather uneasy, she thought that perhaps she had shown greater boldness than was proper, since she had come to this feast after a man had, in a sense, arranged to meet her there. After a moment, Erland asked, Will you dance with me tonight, Kristen? I don't know, sir, replied the maiden. Perhaps you think it might not be proper, he asked. When she didn't answer, he went on. It could be that it's not, but I thought perhaps you might not think it would do any harm if you took my hand tonight. And, by the way, it has been eight years since I took part in a dance. Why is that, sir? asked Kristen. Is it because you were married? But then it occurred to her that if he were a married man, it would not have been seemly for him to arrange this rendezvous with her. So she corrected herself and said, Perhaps you have lost your betrothed, or your wife? Erlen turned around abruptly and gave her a peculiar look. Me? Hasn't Fru Oshild? After a moment he asked, Why did you blush when you heard who I was that evening? Kristen blushed again but did not reply. Then Erland went on, I would like to know what my aunt has told you about me. Nothing more than that she praised you, said Kristen hastily. She said you were handsome and so high-born that— she said that compared to a lineage such as yours and hers, we were of little consequence, my ancestors and I. Is she still talking about such things there, where she now resides? said Erland with a bitter laugh. Well, well, if it comforts her. And she has said nothing else about me. What else would she say? asked Kristen. She didn't know why she felt so strange and anxious. Oh, she might have said replied Erland in a low voice, his head bowed. She might have said that I had been excommunicated and had to pay dearly for peace and reconciliation. Kristen said nothing for a long time. Then she said quietly, I've heard it said that there are many men who are not masters of their fortunes. I've seen so little of the world, but I would never believe of you, Erland, that it was for any ignoble matter. God bless you for such words, Kristen, said Erland. He bent his head and kissed her wrist so fervently that the horse gave a start beneath them. When the animal was once again walking calmly, he said with great ardor, Won't you dance with me tonight, Kristen? Later I'll tell you everything about my circumstances. But tonight let's be happy together. Kristen agreed, and they rode for a while in silence. But a short time later, Erland began asking about Fru Oshild, and Kristen told him everything she knew, 
she had much praise for her. Then all doors are not closed to Bjorn and Osild? asked Erland. Kristen replied that they were well-liked, and that her father and many others thought that most of what had been said of the couple was untrue. What do you think of my kinsman, Munan Bardson? asked Erland with a chuckle. I didn't pay much heed to him, said Kristen, and it didn't seem to me that he was much worth looking at anyway. Didn't you know that he's her son? asked Erland. Fru Oshild's son? said Kristen in astonishment. Yes, the children couldn't take their mother's fair looks, since they took everything else, said Erland. I didn't even know the name of her first husband, said Kristen. They were two brothers who married two sisters, said Erland. Bard and Niklaus Munansen. My father was the older one. Mother was his second wife, but he had no children by his first wife. Bard, who married Oshild, wasn't a young man either, and apparently they never got on well. I was a child when it all happened, and they kept as much from me as they could, but she left the country with Herr Bjorn and married him without the counsel of her kinsmen, after Bard was dead. Then people wanted to annul their marriage. They claimed that Bjorn had slept with her while her first husband was still alive, and that they conspired together to get rid of my father's brother. But they couldn't find any proof of this, and they had to let the marriage stand. But they had to give up all their possessions. Bjorn had killed their nephew, too. The nephew of my mother and Oshild, I mean. Kristen's heart was pounding. At home, her parents had taken strict precautions to keep the children from hearing impure talk. But things had occurred in their village, too, that Kristen had heard about. A man who lived in concubinage with a married woman. That was adultery, one of the worst of sins. They were also to blame for the husband's violent death, and then it was a case for excommunication and banishment. Lovrens had said that no woman had to stay with her husband if he had been with another man's wife, and the lot of offspring from adultery could never be improved, even if the parents were later free to marry. A man could pass on his inheritance and name to his child by a prostitute or a wandering beggar woman, but not to his child from adultery, not even if the woman was the wife of a knight. Kristen thought about the dislike she had always felt toward Herr Bjorn, with his pallid face and his slack, corpulent body. She couldn't understand how Fru Osild could always be so kind and amenable toward the man who had lured her into such shame. To think that such a gracious woman could have allowed herself to be fooled by him. He was not even nice to her. He let her toil with all the work on the farm. Bjorn did nothing but drink ale, and yet Osild was always so gentle and tender when she spoke to her husband. Kristen wondered whether her father knew about this, since he had invited Herr Bjorn into their house. Now that she thought about it, it seemed odd to her that Erland would speak in this manner of his close kinsman, but he probably thought that she knew about it already. It would please me, said Erland after a moment, to visit her, my aunt Osild, sometime, when I journey north. But is he still a handsome man, my kinsman Bjorn? No, said Kristen. He looks like a mound of hay that has lain on the ground all winter long. Ah, yes, it must wear on a man, said Erland with the same bitter smile. Never have I seen a more handsome man. That was twenty years ago, and I was only a small boy back then, but I have never seen his equal. 
A short time later they reached the hospice. It was an enormous and grand estate with many buildings of both stone and wood. A hospital, an almshouse, a guest inn for travelers, the chapel, and the rectory. There was a great tumult in the courtyard, for food was being prepared for the banquet in the hospice's cookhouse, and the poor and the sick guild members were also to be served the very best on that day. The guild hall was beyond the gardens of the hospice, and people were heading that way through the herb garden, for it was quite famous. Fru Groa had brought in plants that no one in Norway had ever heard of before, and, besides that, all the plants that usually grew in such gardens seemed to thrive better in hers flowers and cooking herbs and medicinal herbs. She was the most skilled woman in all such matters, and she had even translated herbals from Salerno into the Norwegian language. Fru Groa had been particularly friendly toward Kristen ever since she noticed that the maiden knew something of the art of herbs and wanted to know more about it. So Kristen pointed out to Erland what plants were growing in the beds on both sides of the green lane as they walked. In the noonday sun there was a hot, spicy fragrance of dill and celery, onions and roses, southernwood and wallflowers. Beyond the shadeless, sun-baked herb garden, the rows of fruit trees looked enticingly cool. Red cherries gleamed in the dark foliage, and apple trees bowed their branches, weighted down by green fruit. Surrounding the garden was a hedge of sweetbriar. There were still some roses left. They looked no different from other hedge roses, but the petals smelled of wine and apples in the heat of the sun. People broke off twigs and pinned them to their clothing as they passed. Kristen picked several roses too, tucking them into the circlet at her temples. She held one in her hand, and after a moment, Erlen took it from her without saying a word. He carried it for a while and then stuck it into the filigree brooch on his chest. He looked self-conscious and embarrassed, and did it so clumsily that he scratched his fingers and drew blood. In the banquet loft several wide tables had been set up, one for the men and one for the women along the walls. In the middle of the floor there were two tables where the children and the young people sat together. At the women's table Fru Groa sat in the high seat. The nuns and most of the wives of high standing sat along the wall, and the unmarried women sat on the opposite bench, with the maidens from Nonasatter closest to the head of the table. Kristen knew that Erland was looking at her, but she didn't dare turn her head even once, either when they were standing or after they sat down. Not until they rose and the priest began to read the names of the deceased guild brothers and sisters did she cast a hasty glance toward the men's table. She caught a glimpse of him as he stood near the wall, behind the burning candle on the table. He was looking at her. The meal lasted a long time with all of the toasts in honor of God, the Virgin Mary, and St. Margareta, St. Olaf, and St. Halvard, interspersed with prayers and hymns. Kristen could see through the open door that the sun had gone down. The sound of fiddles and songs could be heard from out on the green, and the young people had already left the tables when Fru Groa said to the young daughters, that now they might go out to play for a while if they so pleased. Three red bonfires were burning on the green. Around them moved the chains of dancers, now aglow, now in silhouette. The fiddlers were sitting on stacks of chests, bowing the strings of their instruments. They were playing and singing a different tune in each circle. 
there were far too many people to form only one dance. It was nearly dusk already. To the north the crest of the forested ridges stood coal-black against the yellowish-green sky. People were sitting under the gallery of the loft, drinking. Several men leaped up as soon as the six maidens from Nanasetter came down the stairs. Monon Bardson ran up to Ingeburg and dashed off with her, and Kristen was seized by the wrist. It was Erland. She already knew his touch. He gripped her hand so tightly that their rings scraped against each other and bit into their flesh. He pulled her along to the farthest bonfire, where many children were dancing. Kristen took a twelve-year-old boy by the hand, and Erland had a tiny half-grown maiden on his other side. No one was singing in their circle just then. They walked and swayed from side to side, in time with the sound of the fiddle. Then someone shouted that Sivord the Dane should sing a new ballad for them. A tall, fair man with enormous fists stepped in front of the chain of dancers and performed his song. They are dancing now at Montcalm, across the white sand. Their dances, Ivar Herr Jonsson, taking the queen's hand. Do you know Ivar Herr Jonsson? The fiddle players didn't know the tune. They plucked a little on the strings, and the Dane sang alone. He had a beautiful, strong voice. Do you remember, Danish queen, that summer so clear, when you were led out of Sweden and to Denmark here? When you were led out of Sweden and to Denmark here, with a golden crown so red and on your cheek a tear, with a golden crown so red and on your cheek a tear, do you remember, Danish queen, the first man you held dear? The fiddlers played along once more, and the dancers hummed the newly learned tune and joined in with the refrain. And are you, Ivar Herr Jonsson, my very own man? Then tomorrow from the gallows you shall surely hang. And it was Ivar Herr Jonsson. But he did not quail. He sprang into the golden boat, clad in coat of mail. May you be granted, Danish queen, as many good knights as do fill the vault of heaven, all the stars so bright. May you be granted, Danish king, life so fraught with cares as the linden tree has leaves, and the heart has hairs. Do you know, Ivar Herr Jonsson? It was late at night, and the bonfires were mere mounds of glowing embers that grew dimmer and dimmer. Kristen and Erlon stood hand in hand beneath the trees by the garden fence. Behind them the noise of the revelers had died out. A few young boys were humming and leaping around the ember mounds, but the fiddlers had gone off to bed and most of the people had left. Here and there a woman walked around in search of her husband, toppled by ale somewhere outdoors. I wonder where I've left my cloak, whispered Kristen. Erland put his arm around her waist and wrapped his cape around both of them. Walking close together, they went into the herb garden. A remnant of the day's hot, spicy scent wafted toward them, muted and damp with the coolness of the dew. The night was quite dark, the sky hazy gray with clouds above the treetops, but they sensed that others were in the garden. Erland pressed the maiden to him once, and asked in a whisper, You're not afraid, are you, Kristen? Suddenly she vaguely remembered the world outside this night. It was madness, but she was so blissfully robbed of all power. She leaned closer to the man and whispered faintly, she didn't know herself what she said. 
They reached the end of the path. There was a stone fence along the edge of the woods. Erland helped her up. As she was about to jump down to the other side, he caught her and held her in his arms for a moment before he set her down in the grass. She stood there with her face raised and received his kiss. He placed his hands at her temples. She thought it so wonderful to feel his fingers sinking into her hair, and then she put her hands up to his face and tried to kiss him the way he had kissed her. When he placed his hands on her bodice and stroked her breasts, she felt as if he had laid her heart bare and then seized it. Gently he parted the folds of her silk shift and kissed the place in between. Heat rushed to the roots of her heart. You I could never hurt, whispered Erland. Don't ever weep a single tear for my sake. I never thought a maiden could be as good as you are, my Kristen. He pulled her down into the grass under the bushes. They sat with their backs against the stone fence. Kristen said not a word, but when he stopped caressing her, she raised her hand and touched his face. After a moment, Erland asked, Are you tired, dear Kristen? And when she leaned against his chest, he wrapped his arms around her and whispered, Sleep, Kristen. Sleep here with me. She slipped deeper and deeper into the darkness and the warmth and the joy at his chest. When she woke up, she was lying stretched out on the grass with her cheek against the brown silk of his lap. Erland was still sitting with his back against the stone fence. His face was gray in the gray light, but his wide-open eyes were so strangely bright and beautiful. She saw that he had wrapped his cape all around her. Her feet were wonderfully warm inside the fur lining. Now you have slept on my lap, he said, smiling faintly. May God reward you, Kristen. You slept as soundly as a child in her mother's arms. Haven't you slept, Herr Erland? asked Kristen, and he smiled down into her newly awakened eyes. Perhaps someday the night will come when you and I dare to fall asleep together. I don't know what you will think once you have considered that. I have kept vigil here in the night. There is still so much between us, more than if a naked sword had lain between you and me. Tell me, will you have affection for me after this night is over? I will have affection for you, Herr Erland, said Kristen. I will have affection for you as long as you wish, and after that I will love no one else. Then may God forsake me, said Erland slowly. If ever a woman or maiden should come into my arms before I dare to possess you with honor and in keeping with the law. Repeat what I have said, he implored her. Kristen said, May God forsake me if I ever take any other man into my arms for as long as I live on this earth. We must go now, said Erland after a moment, before everyone wakes up. They walked along the outside of the stone fence through the underbrush. Have you given any thought to what should happen next? asked Erland. You must decide that, Erland, replied Kristen. Your father, he said after a pause. Over in Gerderud, they say that he's a kind and just man. Do you think he would be greatly opposed to breaking the agreement he has made with Andre Stara? Father has so often said that he would never force any of his daughters, said Kristen. The main concern is that our lands would fit so well together but I'm certain that father would not want me to lose all joy in the world for that reason. She had a sudden inkling 
that it might not be quite as simple as that, but she pushed it aside. Then maybe this will be easier than I thought last night, said Erland. God help me, Kristen. I can't bear to lose you. Now I will never be happy if I can't have you. They parted among the trees, and in the dim light of dawn, Kristen found the path to the guest house where everyone from Nonacetter was sleeping. All the beds were full, but she threw her cloak over some straw on the floor and lay down in her clothes. When she woke up, it was quite late. Ingebjörg Philippa's daughter was sitting on a bench nearby, mending a fur border that had torn loose from her cloak. She was full of chatter, as always. Were you with Erlen Niklausen all night long? she asked. You ought to be a little more careful about that young man, Kristen. Do you think Simon Andresen would like it if you befriended him? Kristen found a basin and began to wash herself. And what about your betrothed? Do you think he would like it that you danced with Moon on the stump last night? But we have to dance with anyone who invites us on such an evening, and Fru Groa gave us permission after all. Ingebjörg exclaimed, Einar Einarsen and Sir Monan are friends, and besides, he's married and old, and he's ugly too, but amiable and courteous. Look what he gave me as a souvenir of the night. And she held out a gold buckle which Kristen had seen on Sir Monan's hat the day before. But that Erland, well, the ban was lifted from him this past Easter, but they say that Aline Orm's daughter has been staying at his manor at Husaby ever since. Sir Monon said that he has fled to Sarah Yon at Gerderud because he's afraid that he'll fall back into sin if he sees her again. Kristen, her face white, went over to the other girl. Didn't you know that? asked Ingebjörg. That he lured a woman from her husband somewhere up north in Halogaland? And that he kept her at his estate in spite of the king's warning and the archbishop's ban? They have two children together, too. He had to flee to Sweden, and he has had to pay so many fines that Sir Monan says he'll end up a pauper if he doesn't mend his ways soon. Oh, yes, you can be sure I knew all about it, said Kristen, her face rigid. But that's all over now. Yes, that's what Sir Monan said, that it's been over between them so many times before, replied Ingebjörg thoughtfully. It won't affect you. You're going to marry Simon Dara, after all. But that Erland Niklausen is certainly a handsome man. The company from Nonasatur was going to leave that same day, after the mid-afternoon prayers. Kristen had promised Erland to meet him at the stone fence where they had sat during the night, if she could find a way to come. He was lying on his stomach in the grass, with his head on his arms, as soon as he saw her, he leaped up and offered her both of his hands as she was about to jump down. She took them, and they stood for a moment, hand in hand. Then Kristen said, Why did you tell me that story about Herr Bjorn and Fru Asild yesterday? I can see that you know, replied Erland, abruptly letting go of her hands. What do you think of me now, Kristen? I was eighteen years old back then, he continued vehemently. It was ten years ago that the king, my kinsman, sent me on the journey to Vargoy House, and then we spent the winter at Steigen. She was married to the judge Sigurd Saxelson. I felt sorry for her because he was old and unbelievably ugly. I don't know how it happened. Yes, I was fond of her too. I told Sigurd to demand what he wanted in fines. I wanted to do right by him. He's a decent man in many ways. But he wanted things to proceed according to the law, and he took the case to the Ting. 
I was to be branded for adultery with the woman in whose house I had been a guest, you see. My father got wind of it, and then King Hawken found out too, and he, he banished me from his court. And if you need to know the whole story, there's nothing left between Aline and me except the children, and she cares very little for them. They're at Osterdal, on a farm that I own there. I've given the farm to Orm, the boy, but she doesn't want to be with them. I suppose she expects that Sigurd can't live forever, but I don't know what she wants. Sigurd took her back, but she says she was treated like a dog and a slave on his farm. So she asked me to meet her in Nidaros. I was not faring much better at Husaby with my father. I sold everything I could get my hands on and fled with her to Holland. Count Jakob has been a kind friend to me. What else could I do? She was carrying my child. I knew that so many men had managed to escape unscathed from such a relationship with another man's wife. If they were rich, that is. But King Hawken is the sort of man who treats his own most sternly. We were separated from each other for a year, but then my father died, so she came back. And then other things happened. My tenants refused to pay their land rent or to speak to my envoys because I had been excommunicated. I retaliated harshly, and then a case was brought against me for robbery, but I had no money to pay my house servants. You can see that I was too young to deal sensibly with these difficulties, and my kinsmen refused to help me, except for Munan, who did as much as he dared without angering his wife. So now you know, Kristen, that I have compromised much, both my land and my honor. You would certainly be much better served if you stayed with Simon Andresen. Kristen put her arms around his neck. We will stand by what we swore to each other last night, Erland, if you feel as I do. Erland pulled her close, kissed her, and then said, You must also have faith that my circumstances are bound to change. Now no one in the world has power over me except you. Oh, I thought about so many things last night as you lay asleep in my lap, my fair one. The devil cannot have so much power over a man that I would ever cause you sorrow or harm, you who are the most precious thing in my life. <laughs>